0: Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Have you ever watched a movie that you're really enjoying and then it ends and the ending just kind of ruins the whole thing? Uh, there's kind of times where, and then there's sometimes you kind of embrace yourself because you don't know the ending will make this good or bad. Uh, I remember growing up and like this movie called The Perfect Storm came out with George Clooney, a bunch of actors. And I was so pumped to see it because the the cinematography was supposed to be amazing and all the ocean stuff. And the movie was just riveting. I was watching the whole thing, and then the ending was just horrible. Everyone dies. And I'm sorry if I spoiled that for you, but I'm doing you a favor. Don't watch the movie. Because the whole thing is just like, it's like, wow, that, okay. I guess there's no resolution. There's just everyone, it's just over. And I wonder if some people, when they read the the gospel of Mark, when they they read it, there's something about them that just feels like, wait, what happened? Now, uh, a couple things to point out. When Mark ends his gospel, you'll notice if in certain translations, that the second half of Mark chapter 16 is italicized. And the reason is, it's not in the original manuscripts. It's somehow added later. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have some uh, significance, but it's not a part of the original uh, gospel. And the reason it's they kind of, there's a section that's added later on by the church is because of how abrupt it ends. So I'm just gonna read this for you. We're just gonna read the part that's in the original manuscripts. And I want you to see how it just kind of like the ending just kind of was like, but just kind of hits you in a very strange way. It says that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. So Mark ends his gospel. They, I mean, it kind of builds up to this climactic moment. Jesus has just been crucified, and then the women, after after the Sabbath ends, so Saturday night, they go and buy the spices, and then they go the uh, first thing in the morning, right after the sun rises, to the tomb, wondering who's going to roll the stone away. The stones rolled away. There's an angel in the tomb. says Come and inspect the come inspect the empty tomb. He is risen. Matter of fact, he's gone before the disciples. He'll meet them in Galilee. And the whole time, you're just like. This is incredible. And then it says that the women were, be, were trembling and bewildered. They went out, fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then the story just ends. And one has to, to wonder, like, what, what happened? One, one theory actually is that Mark actually died before the ending of this, of the gospel. But most scholars believe that this was absolutely intentional that the way Mark ends his gospel although it might feel strange that the women don't do what the angel tell them to do they don't tell anyone and they and they flay, flee from the tomb and they're afraid and they're trembling and that that is the exact ending Mark is trying to produce why well because the entirety of Mark's gospel is used it's written to to ask the reader and the listener one question who is jesus and so these women the book ends with the women wrestling with that same question who is jesus again there is no expectation in their mind that he was going to be risen otherwise they would not have bought in the spices and gone through all that work And that there, it's almost like the story ends with them still in process. So a couple of things I would love for us to focus on at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Number one is that there is a complex preoccupied community. I'm speaking of the disciples. Secondly, there's a compelling resurrected king. And lastly, a curious grace-filled journey that we're invited into. So the very, the very first point is that the story ends with a complex preoccupied community, community, that those following Jesus find themselves bewildered. They've deserted Jesus. There's, they're preoccupied with the preparations and the reality of his death. And so I wanted to just spend some time talking about that because I, I think that Mark is hitting on something that that's, rings true in, in many of us. That the, the reality of what these women were feeling, what the men were feeling as they deserted Jesus, is oftentimes what marks the Christian journey, what marks the journey towards Jesus. is It's not this like nice, cookie-cutter, well-rounded thing of like, yeah, I heard the gospel, I raised my hand, and my life has been perfect ever since. But for many of us, following Jesus looks like different layers of the journey of questions that we need to wrestle through. Um, a theology that needs to be unlearned and relearned. A Bible that continues to confront us and to change us. And and I love the humanness we find in Scripture. And even that Mark would highlight that kind of the the end characters of the story, other than Jesus, are these women. He repeats their names multiple times toward the ends of his gospel. He talks about their role pre cross and then at the cross and then at the resurrection. But it's these same women who find themselves perplexed, confused, afraid, uh, disobedient. Um, but they're portrayed in Mark's Gospel as really the example of those who follow Jesus. This is who we all are. And I think that this is so important because oftentimes when we find ourselves in our own questions and in our own tension of who is Jesus, sometimes we can find ourselves feeling like we're kind of pushed out, whether that's of the church, a relationship with God, like we have to go figure out God somewhere else. But I think it should be in the context of a relationship with Jesus and the relationship with people who follow him that should be the safest place for us to kind of work through those things and ask those questions and to deal with our own perplexity and to deal with our own fears and to kind of walk through that together. Because the reality is every single one of us, if, if we are too comfortable, it just makes me wonder if we're really wrestling through the question of who is Jesus. My friend, Adrian Swoboda, says that sometimes we love our ideas about Jesus more than we love Jesus. If it takes a lifetime to discover a person, it will take an eternity to discover God. And so, this, this in, in, in this moment of showing the, the perplexity and the fear and the trepidation of the disciples, Mark also flips that and shows the assurance and the security and the reality of the resurrected King. And I think he's doing this on purpose. He's showing that in the doubt, in the confusion, and in the mystery, there's also this stability that Jesus has been raised from the dead. James Edwards says, The flight of the disciples, even Peter's pitiful denial, have not been the last word. It is not given to human beings to speak the last word. The last word belongs to the risen Lord. I am going before you. The first act of Jesus' ministry was the calling of four fishermen into the community with himself. And the first word of the resurrected Jesus is the reconvening of the same community of disciples. I love that. We We don't have the last word. It is the risen king who has the last word. And with the very first words he utters is to reconvene that community. So let's talk a little bit about Jesus. We talked about some of his disciples, but let's talk a bit about who is, who is Jesus presenting himself to be as we wrestle with that question. Now, one thing I wanted to point out says that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Solomon, bought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body very early in the morning, the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, and it makes this little note, just after sunrise. Now, if you remember back to Mark 15, the cross was marked by darkness. It says, for three hours darkness covered the earth. And as we enter into the scene of the resurrection, resurrection, Mark points out, just after the sunrise. And in in common Markian irony, he's posing these two different settings the disbelief of the disciples versus the assurance of the resurrected king. The setting of darkness versus now the setting of light. And this is, this is something that the New Testament authors continue to draw on. This idea that the resurrection marks the beginning of a new day. The beginning of a new light. In Revelations 21, it talks about... The full consummation, the end goal of what the resurrection brings and the, the new creation and the heaven, heavenly reality we have. But what we don't realize is that oftentimes uh, Revelation is quoting the Old Testament. At the end of Revelation, when talking about this idea of light, it's quoting 500 years prior, a prophet by the name of Isaiah. I just want to read you that. He says, Arise, shine, your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will swell Your heart will throb and swell with joy. And this prophecy was given to an oppressed people 500 years before Jesus. And then Jesus shows up. And he marks his resurrection with light. And then you fast forward another 50 years. And the Apostle John, in his vision of heaven, refers back to Revelation chapter 21. Refers back to Isaiah 60 when he says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and his dwell, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will himself be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, the resurrection has just immense theological significance But even in my own life, it has immense personal significance. Because what the resurrection promises is when the land is covered with deep darkness, like it says in Isaiah 60, it says the light will shine. And John, as he reflects on Isaiah 60 and sees a vision of heaven, just talks about there's going to be a day that what happened in Jesus' body is going to be true of all of the new creation. That There will be no more dying. No more death, no more mourning, no more tears. And the reason that has special significance to me is because this week um, I spent Thursday and then Friday at two different memorials. Uh, One was for my grandpa, my other grandpa. One had passed in June, the other one had just passed last week. The other one was for a family in our church to grieve the loss of their child. And being in that setting of of death being in that setting of loss and grief my eyes swelling with tears multiple times over the past few weeks because of just the reality of the world that we live in i have found myself having such a thankfulness for mark chapter 16 such a thankfulness for the resurrection Such a thankfulness of the resurrection, not only as a historical event, but as our trajectory. This is where we're going. And I think that one of the gifts that was brought to me when someone found out my grandpa passed, um, they brought me a little olive tree. And I don't think they realized how much significance that had for me. But a few years back when I was in Israel, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is an olive, it's an olive grove. And we're walking around the trees and we actually had access just to a private garden. It's one of the most sacred moments I had on the whole trip. And you're leaning up against these trees, wondering if any of these trees uh, were reminiscent of what Jesus would have been like in, or leaned against in those, those dark hours as he got ready for the crucifixion. And the archaeologist who was with us began to start telling us that the olive tree is called the resurrection tree. And the reason it's called that is because after an olive tree dies, from the middle of the trunk, a new tree is born. And so the olive tree never really ever actually dies. And so if you see an old olive trees, they're very, very wide, even though the branches don't go that far. And so they decided to take a sample of these olive trees uh, to two different universities, one in the United States, one in England, And they did a test on these trees, and what they found is that most of the trees in this olive grove are over 2,000 years old, but they keep resurrecting. And I thought that was so powerful that in this same garden that Jesus was wrestling through the tension of leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection, those trees still stand today. And as I was kind of receiving this gift of my own little olive tree, I was just reminded that when we end the book of Mark and we're confronted with who is Jesus, that we get to stand and be like, oh, he is the resurrected king. That's who he is. He's the king of resurrection. So even death and mourning and loss and grieving and sickness, all of those things, as real as they are, are not the end. My sister Sent me, a, sent me a quote by one of our, our favorite poets, Rilke, about resurrection. I just want to read this to you. It says, There is also this to see. They will live on. They will increase. No longer ponds of time. They will grow like the sweet wild berries. The forest ripens as its treasure. Then blessed are those who never turned away. And blessed are those who stood quietly in the rain. There shall be the harvest, for them the fruits. They will outlast the pomp and power, whose meanings and structures will crumble. When all else is exhausted and bled of purpose, they will lift their hands that have survived. And I just love the, the language of this idea of they will live on, they will increase, no longer ponds of time. They'll grow. They will ripen like berries. And there's just this, this imagery of Jesus' resurrection is the inauguration of the new creation. That this is all of our story for those of us who find ourselves in Christ. Which kind of leads to our third point. If, if all of the disciples in Mark's gospel are painted as people who are have deserted Jesus, who are confused, who are fearful, who ran away, and then you have Jesus who's the resurrected King. He's done everything that he's done. How, How do these two things merge? Whatever happens to the disciples, how do they answer who Jesus is? And what I think is really fascinating is that in Mark's Gospel, the empty tomb that the Angel litters had come and look at it, the evidence was not what convinced them. It was the encounter that Jesus had with each and every one of them afterwards. I just want to talk a second about this. If we are to move from people who are confused and bewildered and fearful into people who embrace the resurrection, that doesn't happen simply through information simply through observing something, listening to a teaching like this. It happens when you encounter the living God. How do I know that? Well, because every person in the New Testament and the other Gospels, it was when they actually encountered the resurrected Christ that their lives began to change. I mean, think about it. Mary, the, the person at the tomb that that was running and didn't want to say anything, in John's Gospel, he points out that it was when Jesus showed up and she thought he was a gardener. And it's when that he said her name, Mary, that she turns around says, and says, Rabbi, recognizes who it is. I think about, I think about the men on the road to Emmaus who, have, who are leaving, they're going away from Jerusalem and they're just perplexed. And Jesus shows up and just starts talking to them and explains how he has to fulfill all these prophecies, but it says their eyes were closed. And it wasn't until Jesus sat down and broke bread with them that like Mary, their eyes were open. I think about Thomas, I think about how every one of the disciples saw him and he's like, I'm sorry, I can't believe in him until I've touched his sides and felt the wounds in his hands. And what does Jesus do? He shows up and he invites Thomas, you can, you can come and you can touch my wounds. And, And then Thomas responds in that encounter, surely you're the Lord. I think about Peter and how he deserted Jesus and he ran to the tomb, but Peter's journey is so unique because his is not one that's that just had a moment and everything went well for him. It was a continued sense of Jesus' pursuit of him and the formation of him as he continued to live his life. And as you read into the Book of Acts and even the epistles that he wrote, Peter was consistently on a journey of encountering Jesus. And so I just I wanted to just pose these four characters as an example of us who stand in between this place of a of a, of a sure resurrected king and yet a complex preoccupied faith is that what we need more than anything is an encounter but by encounter, i don't just mean one sort of momentary goosebump time feeling it means that like these characters all of them are very unique maybe for some of us it's an intimate encounter like mary's it's, it's hearing the living god speak your name it's engaging in such a way that when you hear the Spirit speak to you, you turn around and you recognize Him. Maybe you're like Thomas. Maybe for you it's about evidence. Maybe it's like, I, I have questions. And, I, and Jesus gracious, graciously shows up in that way. Maybe you're like the men on the road to Emmaus that no matter how much information you get, it's never enough. It's actually when you break bread. It's around the table that you encounter Jesus. And maybe you, like me, are like Peter. And it is an ongoing journey that continues to need to let him to move in your heart. Because the reality is, what Mark shows us, is that what we have more than anything at the book of Mark is an invitation. And how will we respond? Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey, says it really well. He says, when spirituality is viewed as a static possession... The way of spiritual wholeness is seen as the acquisition of information and techniques that enable us to gain possession of the desired state of spirituality. Discipleship is perceived as my spiritual life and tends to be defined by actions that ensure its possession. Thus, the endless quest for techniques, methods, programs by which we hope to achieve spiritual fulfillment The hidden premise behind all of this is the unquestioned assumption that we alone are in control of our spirituality. In brief, we assume we are in control of our relationship with God. But when spirituality is viewed as a journey, however, However, the way to spiritual wholeness is seen to lie in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our path, whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from crippling bondages of the prior journey, and whose transforming presence meets us at each turn in the road. In other words, holistic spirituality is a pilgrimage of deepening responsiveness to God's control of our life and being. And, that, and that's my hope as we conclude the book of Mark, is that you would sense a divine invitation. That your relationship with God is not some static thing that you achieve or possess or work towards. But it's an invitation to a journey to become closer and closer and more like Jesus as a result of his pursuit. Because if you notice with Mary, the road to Emmaus, Thomas, Peter, all four of those were initiated by Jesus. It was not any of their conclusions, their logic, their work. Matter of fact, it was the opposite. I think William Henley in his famous poem Invictus says, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. And I think the Gospel of Mark challenges that thought that actually it is Jesus who's the pursuer of our soul. It is Jesus who meets us in our preoccupation and in our complexity in the mystery. It is Jesus who meets us uniquely, just as we need him to. And it's our job to continue to open ourselves up to that work. It's why in Ephesians 2, 8-10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast For we're God's handiwork, his workmanship. He's crafted us to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So my my prayer for you today is that as we look back over the past 16 weeks or so, studying the book of Mark, is that we would find ourselves, wherever we are, maybe we're like Peter or the women at the empty tomb, and we find ourselves in some level of perplexity, that we would find beyond our own questions and mystery and doubt, a stronger invitation of a resurrected king. who says, come, I want to invite you into new life. I want to invite you into the, the reality where death is not the last word, they place where there will be no more crying or mourning or pain. And the road to get there is not some static moment. It is the invitation to a journey. It is to come with Jesus in whatever state you're in, to let Him pursue you and for our hearts to respond to Him in that way. And as we do and as we wrestle the rest of our life with who is Jesus, I pray that we would just remember the words, AJ um, e. Soboda said that if it takes a whole lifetime to learn a person we will spend an eternity learning God and that this is today's an opportunity an invitation to meet, to receive, to encounter the beauty of the resurrected king, the living God. I pray that Jesus would meet you today in a powerful and profound way. You, may you be met with his holy Spirit grace and peace to you <laughs> Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.